0: All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started. So, last week, uh we started the book of Revelation, and I know a lot of you guys weren't here, but essentially we spent a lot of time last week breaking down the big picture stuff, talking about different views on how to interpret the book and just really getting into the the whole how we're going to go through this book. And so, this week what we're really going to be focusing on is a lot more of the scripture itself. We're going to be finishing up chapter 1, and this is also going to kind of serve as an intro to Revelation because Chapter one, essentially, like this whole chapter is just a big summary for the entirety of the book of Revelation. Um, it also partially continues to we're going to pick up on some of the stuff that we talked about last week, but tonight is where we're really going to get into like talking about the imagery and the symbolism and all of the like all the really confusing stuff in Revelation. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, and if you want to know more about the different views and how to interpret it, then you should go listen to last week's podcast. Um, so, but look, so the first major thing that I do want you guys to see as we start going through this book, and we're about to start getting into the verses, but as we start going through this book, the first major thing that we need to establish is that the description of Jesus given in this passage is not meant to paint a physical picture, but a spiritual one. So the description of Jesus is not meant to paint a physical picture, but a spiritual one. The whole point of this was not for us to picture what Jesus actually looked like. Like We're not supposed to picture a guy with the fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and all this stuff. That's not the, that's not the point. That's not what we're supposed to picture. Because one, that's ridiculous. And two, there's no point in Scripture where it tells us what Jesus looked like. That's not something we're supposed to know. It's not something we need to know. Instead, the focus here is for us to see. It's almost like we're able to physically see the spiritual aspects of Jesus. Like It's showing us... Hey, there's, there's this aspect about him, and he has this aspect about him, and it's so visceral, it's so real, it's so intense that it that it manifests in a physical vision. So though John may have physically seen this stuff, that's not how we're supposed to take it. And look, I'm going to say this a hundred times, but the imagery here in Revelation cannot be taken literally. Like at no point are we going to be reading these symbols and the images and all the crazy stuff and say, you should actually picture this happening. The majority of this book is very figurative. It's very not meant to be taken literally. Instead, it's just supposed to paint a picture for us. And so, but also, and I talked about this last week, but another thing to understand that's important for us to understand is that the images and the symbols and all this stuff that we're seeing in this book, this would not have been confusing to the people in John's time. Like when they were reading the book of Revelation, this all made perfect sense to them. This all lined up with things that they already knew, symbols that they already said. It's similar today to how we use metaphors and similes, like you know, like for example, if you said, "Hey, I'm I'm so hungry I could eat a horse." That's to somebody who doesn't speak English, that's a weird sentence. But for us, we know it; we're familiar with it. Like we've said that a hundred times, we've heard that a hundred times. It's the same way for them back then. Like back then, when they're reading this letter, when they're reading this, and it's being given to the churches, they hear these images and the symbolism, and they're like, "Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like I know what this means." Also, they knew what this meant because a lot, the majority of the images and the symbolism, all this stuff comes from the Old Testament. So they've already been reading, like, this has been their scriptures. This is what they have been following along with for years, as long as they've been a church. So for us today, for us to fully understand the book of Revelation, we need to. We're going to spend a lot of time today diving into the Old Testament. We're going to spend a lot of time comparing where these two line up and where the Revelation is really just quoting passages from the Old Testament. And then we're going to explain those so that we can understand why this is important and why it matters for us today. Because ultimately, just like I said last week, my purpose for you guys with this book is not so that you can go in, like, it's not to give you this complete comprehensive guide to the book of Revelation. My goal is just for you guys to... Learn how to read this book for yourself so you can use it in your everyday lives. Like this book was meant to be read as an epistle. It's meant to be read as something that, you know, we read just like Ephesians or Galatians. It's meant to be something that we can use in our everyday lives and that can speak into our lives and that can almost be devotional in a lot of ways. This is a book that's meant to give us comfort and hope. And so my goal is for us to see that in this book and be able to apply it to ourselves in that way. So, getting into this book, um, in Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 9. I'm going to go ahead and read from 9 all the way to the end, and then we're just going to start breaking it down section by section. So, in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9, it says, "...I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and and in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, who was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus..." and the living one, I, and the living one, I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right therefore, the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this, for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So right off the bat, just the first nine through 11 here, this is kind of setting up more the book of Revelation for us. Okay, so last week we just read the intro to this book, just the beginning part where he kind of introduces himself, introduces what this book is about, gives us a summary. And then now it's so when he's jumping into the actual narrative. Like now he's like, okay, so this is what happened. Like this is where I was, this is what I was doing. So this is, this is kind of like the intro to the actual story here. So we're seeing that John has been sent to Patmos, likely by the Roman government, as a, as a punishment for sharing the gospel. He's probably been working in the quarries here. He's working in the mines. He's in his 90s. So this is very difficult for him. And he's facing a lot of hard labor and persecution. But I love that he uses this phrase in the beginning here. He says, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Because this so perfectly sets the stage for the entire book of Revelation. Like he's writing a letter from a place of deep tribulation and persecution and suffering to churches who are going through deep tribulation and persecution. And that is what unites them in Christ. See, the churches back then were under the rule of this Roman emperor who just hated Christians. Like he was a terrible human being and he hated Christians. He persecuted them. He was killing them. All the other apostles had already been killed off by this point. And so it was just John left. And he's working in the mines. He has all this going on. He's suffering. And he's writing to him. And he says, hey, I am your brother and your partner in this suffering. Like, I am in this with you. We are united in Christ. See, this letter was written for Christians who are suffering by a Christian who was suffering. That's what perfectly sets the stage for this book, that this book was written for Christians who are suffering by a Christian who was suffering. And then he kind of explains a little bit about about what's going on and about what, what, what was happening when he saw these visions. Now, I want to point out here, some scholars would say that him being in the spirit on the Lord's day means that the spirit was showing him the day of judgment or the end times. But first of all, that's dumb. We're not interpreting it that way. But second, this is important because this shows us right here that this wasn't like, this was a vision that likely took place over the course of one day, like, He's standing there, it's the Lord day, so it's a Sunday. He's worshiping God, he's just doing his normal thing, and all of a sudden he's kind of taken up by the spirit in the same way that the Christians were at Pentecost. So he's kind of taken up in the spirit and he, he starts hearing this voice and seeing these visions happening. And the, like, the expectation here is that this probably all happened in one day, like this is a one-time event where he sees all of this happen, where he sees all this history laid out, all these things happening, all these visions, all these signs, all these miracles, all laid out for him and he writes it all down we don't know how long it took him to write it but it likely wasn't long and he immediately had this sent from patmos and like sent around to the seven churches and beyond so this is important because what this shows us is that christ is speaking to him right here from the beginning it shows us that that christ was speaking to him in a way that was just it was as if he was telling a story while these visions are happening it's also important to point out here that Christ is speaking to him from behind at first. This is important because it shows us that Christ wanted to he wanted him to hear what he was saying before he saw him. Because he knew that as soon as John saw him, as soon as he turned around, he wouldn't be able to compose himself. He wouldn't be able to handle it. It says he immediately fell down in front of him as soon as he saw him. So for us, this shows us that the words that Jesus is speaking here are really important, and he wants John to hear him before he sees him. So then... Moving on to verses 12 through 16, this is the part where we really start getting into the visions, into the imagery, into the symbolism. And so the first thing that he mentions here is these seven golden lampstands. He turns around, he sees the golden lampstands. This is probably like what a lot of your grandmothers probably have in their houses. Like it's literally just a golden lampstand that has little candles on it. Context clues lead us to believe that the lampstands and the churches are connected Um, because the churches are mentioned right before this, but Jesus also later reveals that this is exactly what it means. He's like, hey, so the, the seven lampstands here represent the seven churches that I'm speaking to specifically. Here's where we see the first major Old Testament reference, okay, because seven, this isn't the first time that we've seen this before. Now, I do want to point out, okay, seven is the number of completion. That's what it's meant to be. That's important, okay? This isn't This isn't meant to be lucky. This isn't meant to be like overly spiritual or anything like that. Seven is just a number of completion. So like when you hear people talking about like how the importance of like, you know, people talk about like, oh, well, 666 and that's the mark of the beast. And then seven is God's number. None of that is true. Like this is literally just a number of completion that was widely recognized in a Jewish community at the time. It's like all the churches hearing this would have understood that. But this is important because the first time that we see these seven golden lampstands mentioned is actually back in Zechariah. So in Zechariah chapter 4, we're going to spend a good bit of time there today. If you want to turn there, you can. But in Zechariah chapter 4, this is where the first time that we see this reference happen. It's the first time we see this talk of the golden lampstands. We see this talk about, about you know this vision, and somebody seeing a vision, and somebody seeing what's happening, and somebody seeing this, this vision happen in front of them, and the same type of language is used. So... I love this because in Zechariah chapter four, starting in verse one, and it's really, it's verses one through 14 that we see this, but just the first three verses here. So starting in verse one, this is Zechariah talking and an angel visits him. And so he's, he's recording this vision that he sees. It says, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So right now, already, this is super weird. Like, is sleeping, he's chilling, this angel comes to him, wakes him up, says again, so clearly this has been happening, and says, hey, what do you see now? Normally, when angels come, they come to tell you things, but instead, this angel comes and says, hey, I want you to tell me what you're seeing. So Zechariah responds, It says, I said, I see, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it and there are two olive trees by one on the right of the bowl the other on the left and so as you continue through these verses you know all the way through verse 14 you kind of see him explaining more about what he's seeing in these seven lampstands and and why that's important well, we're picking up in the in verse 10 in the second half of verse 10 he says these seven are the eyes of the lord which range throughout the whole earth then I said to him, what are the two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered to him, and I said, what are the two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil, oil is poured out? And he said to me, so this is, this is him being responded to. You know, God is explaining his vision to him. And he says, he said to me, do you not know who these are? And he said, no, my Lord. Then he said these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So look, a lot of confusing imagery here. So let me explain to you what Zechariah is talking about so we can then understand what Revelation is talking about. So in this passage Zechariah is seeing visions about the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. Okay? So Zechariah came during a time when Dru- when Jerusalem was about to go retake their lands. Okay? They had been exiled, they've been taken out of their lands like their kings had all been taken apart. They have been in exile in Babylon for years. And they're about to go retake their land. Babylon is letting them go back, and they're going to rebuild the temple. And so Zechariah is seeing visions of this happening. And this specifically is talking about the temple. Um, the lampstands here are th- supposed to represent God's presence in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. You know, there's this one spot in the temple where God's spirit dwells. That's exactly what the lampstands represent here. Again, it's seven, the number of completions. This is like, hey, God is here in this temple, the seven lampstands represent him. Also, there were actual lampstands that stood in each of the temples. More on that later. Um, And so all of this is a reference to how God inhabits the temple. The two anointed ones on each side of the lamp here, that's representing the descendant of David, which is Zerubbabel, um, and the priest of the time, the high priest, whoever that was. So there was a high priest, and then there was a descendant of David. Remember, Jesus was a descendant of David, so this is just... You know, the line of David is important to them. So this is essentially God saying, hey, I'm going to rebuild my temple. I'm going to re-inhabit it. And it's going to be through the descendant of David who's here. His name is Servable, And then it's also going to be through the priest, the person who can talk to me, communicate to you guys on my behalf. So right here he's saying to Sage, he's like, I am going to rebuild the temple. This is who I'm going to use to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. Essentially, this is about how God is going to accomplish his purpose not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. And he's going to use those two olive branches, okay, the, the anointed one and the high priest to do it. And Revelation, however, God's not talking about rebuilding a temple anymore because he has no need for the temple anymore. He no longer resides in the temple. See, now as believers, we believe that God resides in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. He lives within us. He dwells in us. He resides in us. So, What he's saying here, this isn't God talking about building a temple. This is God talking about building a church that he can dwell in. Because all of us are the church. So being on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, what we need to understand is that the lampstands represent God dwelling among his people in the church. Okay, So they represent the seven churches and the fact that God is dwelling in the churches with his people. He's not building a temple to dwell in, but a church. There are no olive trees on on either side of the lampstands now because both of those have been fulfilled by the person in the middle of the lampstands, and that's Jesus, the descendant of David and the great high priest. So everything that has been prophesied about in the Old Testament is now true in Revelation. This is a lot of big technical stuff. All it's meant to show us is that God is going to build his church whether no matter what happens on this earth, whether the government tries to persecute it, whether we don't live up to the expectations that are meant that are like put before us, no matter what happens, God is going to rebuild his church. He's going to build up this church. He's going to dwell in it, and he's going to do it all through Christ. That's the good news for us today. That God uses Christ to accomplish all of this. God will use Christ to accomplish his purpose of building his church. God will accomplish the purpose of building his church and he will use Christ to do it. All of this is good news for us because we have Christ living in us. We're living, we, we are the people of Christ. who are living out this promise now. So then, the next Old Testament reference that's made is when he says, one like a son of man... And I talked about this a little bit last week. We've talked a little bit about this whole idea of a son of man before. But specifically in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, this um, this is this, all of this outlines what he's talking about here. Now, specifically, I'm only going to focus on verses 13 and 14. Um, but the whole first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 7 really outline who this son of man is and why is this is important and why this matters. But then we get to verse 13. And so Daniel... Again, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. He's seeing visions of what's to come. He's seeing visions of what's going to happen. And he says, in, 7, 4, in 7.13, he says, I saw the night visions and behold, with the clouds in heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the, to the ancient of days, that's God. He's talking about God the Father. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is all talking about the reign of Christ. It's all talking about how Christ, the son of man is going to come and he's going to be victorious over sin and death. And God is going to give him dominion over all things so that everyone ha- can and should submit to him. And eventually everyone will submit to him. See, Jesus often refers to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man. That's the thing that he refers to himself as the most. And it was how he designated himself as the one that Israel had already put their hope in. They knew they had a Messiah coming. They knew they had someone coming they're waiting on. And so this is, this is Jesus' way of saying, hey, I am him. I am that Messiah you've been waiting for. I am the Son of Man. I will be coming on the clouds victorious to judge the living and the dead. This verse is also amazing because it shows us that Christ is with us. Notice where he is. He's not standing on either side of the lampstand anymore like the olive branches are. He's not like the descendant of David, who's off to one side and the high priest is on the other side. He is among the lampstands. Jesus is present with his churches and he cares for them. He's walking among them. He's tending to the lampstands, just like the high priest would. But he's also helping to build the churches, just like just like the, the descendant of David would. Jesus is fulfilling all of these roles, and he's not far away from us. He's with us, and he cares for us, and he walks alongside us every single day. Everything that John uses to describe Jesus here can be found in Daniel, which means we've seen it before, and this is the fulfillment of those apocalyptic writings. This is important because it shows us that Daniel, it shows us that Revelation was not new for the audience that was receiving it. They had seen all of this before, and now they were seeing it fulfilled. And this is just further confirmation of the teachings that they had already been given on the book of Daniel. So we're seeing all of this happen. We're seeing this, how this description of Christ is starting to come about. You know Now that Christ is being described and he's the son of man, so that immediately links him to the book of Daniel. It's saying, hey, this is the guy who is going to save all of us. He's going to come back and he is coming back to this world to take those of us who love him with him and send everybody else away for eternity. But so this is where we see the fulfillment of everything that we see in the Old Testament. And so back to this idea of Jesus being the high priest, the clothes that he used to des- that are used to describe him here, the same clothes that would have been worn by the high priest in the Old Testament. So this whole th- thing with the golden sash, like this is exactly how the high priest would have dressed in the Old Testament. And the believers at that time would have known this. They would have been well aware of this. So think about what this would mean for them. This would be the confirmation to them that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the one who walks alongside us. We don't have to go to a priest to confess our sins anymore. We don't have to, we don't have to pray to saints. We don't have to pray to anybody else. We can talk directly to Jesus who intercedes to God on our behalf. We have a relationship with God now because of Christ, a direct relationship with Him. All of this would have been such immense hope for the church at that time, the church that was suffering, the church that was being persecuted, the church that saw pain at every single turn. They could have looked at us and said, Jesus is still there. He is walking with us. He is among us and he cares for us. And he is praying for us. He is interceding on our behalf. And then we continue. So his hair is described here the same way that Daniel describes the father earlier in Daniel chapter seven. So in verse nine, he says, as I looked, thrones were placed in the ancient of days, God the father, Took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. Exactly how Jesus is described here. This is to show us, one, the relationship between Jesus and the Father, saying, hey, they're both God. Like, Jesus is God the Son. You know, God the Father is God the Father. Like, they're both God. But this also shows us that through Jesus, just like Paul says in Philippians, he did not. He, that though Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in the form, of be, the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man, he has now been glorified in his death. He's been glorified in his death and his resurrection and ascension. It shows us his eternal wisdom. It shows us that he is now like the Father, knowing all things for all eternity. And that he has now been glorified in all things. His eyes are described as fiery, showing that nothing escapes his gaze. No sin, no faithful deed, no injustice, nothing escapes his sight. His feet being bronze shows us the purity of Jesus. Because bronze was a metal that had to be refined in fire until it was considered completely pure. So this shows us the purity of Jesus. But it also shows us his steadfastness. He's like a statue, like his feet are bronze. He doesn't move, he doesn't waver, he has never changed, he never will change. He is firmly planted. His voice is described as the roar of many waters. And I'm not sure how many of you guys have ever been near a river before, but those things are loud, typically. Like, if you've ever been whitewater rafting, then you know that it's hard to hear anything, even the people next to you, because the water is so loud around you. So, essentially, this is his voice being described as something that drowns out all other noises. Nothing can overspeak, nothing can you know, speak over him, nothing can escape his voice also a reference to Exodus chapter 20 um, or Exodus chapter 19 verses 16 and then 19 through 20 where God speaks to his people and his voice is described as a loud trumpet or booming thunder and all the people who hear it are trembling in fear. The stars in his hand are explained in verse 20 so we're going to come back to this. but his mouth is described as a two-edged sword. So a two-edged sword is used to separate things. He makes decisive judgments with his mouth. He separates the sheep from the goats. He separates those who are following him from those who are not following him. He renders judgments. He sends people to hell for eternity or, send, or brings people into life for eternity. He has that power with his voice. And then his face is described like this to show us how awe-inspiring and holy he is. Think about the appearances of God in the Old Testament, like when he's, when he's walking past a cave and his, his light is so bright that nobody can look at him directly. That's exactly the the kind of imagery it's supposed to convey here. It's It's supposed to show us that His glory is too bright for any human to see or comprehend. Again, this is not meant to be a physical description of Jesus, but a spiritual one. All of these images are meant to show us the glory and the beauty of Christ. All of these images are meant to show us the glory and the beauty of Christ. So finally, let's look at this last set of verses here. Let's look at first, let's look at John's response to Jesus here. Because I love this. He turns around in verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the exact kind of reaction here that the imagery of Christ is supposed to convey in us. Like when the when the readers in in the New Testament, when they would have read this letter, This is exactly the kind of response they would have had because they understood these symbols. They knew how glorious and how great it was for John to see Jesus and describe him like this. This was never meant to be confusing or weird or funny. It was always meant to be awe-inspiring. But also, I want to point out the fact that Jesus is the man that John had walked with for years. The man that he knew in the flesh. He was the last living apostle, and he wrote the letter of John. So, like, this is the guy who knew Jesus. In letter of John, he's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yet he's completely awestruck by his appearance here. He doesn't describe him in familiar terms. He doesn't describe him how he would have described him if he saw him how he was in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Instead, he describes him exactly how the Old Testament prophets would have if they had been the ones to encounter him. But what I love most about this is that despite Domitian's belief that he was a God worthy of all worship and praise, despite the fact that the Roman emperor thought that he was God, that everyone must bow down to him, despite all of that, it was only Jesus who could evoke this type of response. Only Jesus could make someone forcibly see him and bow down and fall to their faces though dead. Only Jesus actually has that kind of power and authority over all things. Even though John knew him personally, he had no choice but to fall down before him. And despite all of this power and authority and glory, look at what happens here. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He puts his hand on him and he comforts him. He says, don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid. I have all the power and all the authority. I've already beaten the only things you had to fear, sin and death. I had the keys to Hades. Despite everything, what we see here is that the true King and Lord of all is near to his people and he cares for them. The true King and Lord of all is near to his people and he cares cares for them he is near to his people and he cares for them the god of all creation the first and the last the beginning and end of all things draws near to us christ walks among the lampstands he's not far away he's not off over there somewhere he is here he's with his church walking among us, caring for us, loving us, helping us to see who he is and to love us deeper and helping us to love him more deeply. Already we see the gospel in full display here. And I love this because no matter what, this can give us joy and hope because we know that no matter what it is that we're facing, the statement is as true today as it was when it was written, that he has defeated sin and death, that he has authority over all things that he is alive forevermore, that he died on our behalf, but he rose again from the grave. And I love this because then in these last two verses here we see John, we see John being commissioned to write this letter to everyone. Jesus commissions John to write down the revelation that he had received from the Father. And that's what I love about this is that the Father gives Jesus a revelation which is already mind-blowing to think about. Like the Father is giving Jesus this revelation first and then tells Jesus to give it to us and Jesus goes to the last living apostle and says, I need you to write this down for the others to read. I need you to write this down and send it off to these seven churches and then to all the churches around them for eternity to come. Despite being glorified and and being given authority over all things, he still chooses to use us. He easily could have given this revelation directly to the seven churches, but instead he had it written down and he had it written down by an apostle. Somebody who, you know, when we were, you know, when the early church was looking to make the canon of scripture, and they were looking to put the Bible together and say what books they wanted to use and what books they didn't want to use, they could look to and say, hey, this is written by John, we have to trust this. This is a book that couldn't have been left out of Scripture, and that's what's so important about it. I also want to point out that some scholars believe that verse 19 lays out the structure for the entire book of Revelation. So in verse 19, it says, Write write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Essentially, a lot of people think that this was kind of written as like a, hey, these, write down the things you've already seen, write down the things that are happening now, and then write down the things that are going to happen in the future in that order. I don't necessarily know if that's completely true for all of this, but it's not a bad explanation of that verse. But then finally, we see him explain a little bit of this vision to John. This is just like when Jesus would explain his parables in the Gospels. So he goes to him and he says, hey, this is what this means. You know, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So essentially this is his way of saying, hey, he's, he's setting up his message to each of the seven churches. This is him essentially saying, hey, this is, this is meant for these churches and I need you to make sure that this letter gets to them because this is who I'm talking to. This is who I'm addressing directly here. You're seeing them behind me and around me. So all this sets up the entirety of the book of Revelation. Because we see here some Old Testament references. We see this imagery that's being explained. We see all of these different sources where we can look at this and say that this is a book that's supposed to provide hope and comfort for all believers everywhere, all the time. Now, next week, we're going to start getting into the the letters to the seven churches, probably one of the most straightforward parts of the book of Revelation, probably the one most of us have heard preached on before. Um, but with this background, we can now look at those seven letters to the seven churches and understand them better. We can understand the context for why they were written and why it matters. So we can also understand that these seven churches are not just those seven churches. They represent all churches everywhere all the time. So now let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are and for what you've done. And God, I thank you that even in a book like Revelation, we can still see your hope and your grace and your love for us. We can still find the comfort that we need in times of suffering and pain and persecution. God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have here together to open up your word and to spend time in it. I pray that you would bless the discussion that we're about to have. And God, help us to glorify you in everything that we do throughout this week And next. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.